0: the nice
1: George Michael's adult life and career can be broadly divided into two phases, with the dividing line being his arrest in Beverly Hills in 1998 for exposing himself to an undercover police officer in a public restroom. Before the incident, he was one of the most admired and successful singers and songwriters in the world, with 11 number one hits to his credit, the adoration of fans and the media, and a carefully curated reputation as a ladies' man that served him well both critically and commercially. But the incident changed everything. He was outed as gay after working for decades to avoid it during a time when being a successful gay pop star was unthinkable. He was subjected to intense media scrutiny and made the butt of jokes on late night TV. He became a recluse, terrified to face questions from the paparazzi and sideways looks from the same fans who had once screamed his name adoringly. He stopped writing music, toured far less, and avoided interviews other than for the purpose of lambasting the media for its coverage of him. He spent nearly all of his time playing video games at home, while routinely drinking and smoking weed, often snorting cocaine and smoking crack, and sometimes taking the date-rate jug, GHB, before wandering into London parks looking for public sex. And so, Michael's death on Christmas morning in 2016 was shocking but not altogether unexpected. By that time, he had not performed in over four years and was rarely seen in public. On those rare occasions when he did emerge once in a while to walk the dog or have dinner with a friend, he appeared exceptionally unhealthy heavy with ashen skin and sunken eyes. There was open speculation in the British media that Michael must have again given in to the addictions that had haunted him during the latter part of his life. And indeed he had. His body was discovered by his longtime partner, Fadi Fawaz, who said he went to check on the singer after he failed to emerge from his bedroom on Christmas morning and found him not breathing and unresponsive. Fawaz later created quite a stir when he told emergency responders that he had administered CPR for a full hour before calling for help, But the medical examiner determined that Michael could not have been saved even had Fawaz acted sooner. Michael's heart, weakened by years of drug abuse and his profoundly unhealthy lifestyle, had simply given out, and there was nothing Fawaz or anyone else could have done to save him. But in death, Michael finally found the rehabilitation he could never find in life. As public perceptions of homosexuality and mental health evolved, so did the public's acceptance of Michael's lifestyle, and with it came a renewed appreciation for his art and the legacy that he left. George Michael was 53 years old. I'm Jason Beckerman. I'm Derek Kaufman. And this is Last Days, George Michael.
2: Michael's music career began when he met Andrew Ridgely at prep school in the late 1970s and formed a ska band called The Executive. They didn't gain much traction, so Michael and Ridgely purposefully evolved their style into a more commercially viable pop sound and renamed themselves Wham. Perhaps the name was a little too on the nose, and they took a lot of flack for it, but it was an immediate success. Their first two promoted singles, Young Guns and Wham Rap, both charted, and their club dates started attracting larger audiences. The next year, they released the album Make It Big, and boy did they ever, Jason. The album's first single, written by Michael, was inspired by a note an exhausted Ridgley had written for his parents one night with a distinctive grammatical error, asking them to quote "wake me up before you go go." Michael quickly filled out the rest of the lyrics, and the result was the band's first international hit, peaking at number 1 in the US in the spring of 1985. I was dreaming, but I While Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go was a classic bubblegum pop designed to appeal to the masses, their next hit, Careless Whisper, created with the legendary R&B producer Jerry Wexler at Muscle Shoals Studios in Alabama, is the kind of soulful piece of pop rock that would become Michael's calling card and launch him to superstardom. (laughs)
1: Careless Whisper" was Billboard's biggest hit of 1985, edging out Like a Virgin for Billboard's top spot, and they followed it up with four more number one hits over the next year, including Everything She Wants and Last Christmas. They went on their first international tour that year, played to sold-out crowds at the world's biggest stadiums with millions of fans, most of them young women, screaming for the gorgeous and charming Michael. But the rise in Michael's star was an existential threat to the band, and fissures emerged. While Michael was invited to record duets with Elton John and appear front and center at the 1986 Live Aid concert, Ridgely stood at the rear, strumming his guitar with the backup musicians. Then, U.S. radio stations began incorrectly crediting Careless Whisper to, quote, Wham! featuring George Michael, and others just to George Michael, a particularly cruel twist considering it was the band's only hit on which Ridgely was a credited co-writer. By 1986, when Michael starred on the rise and offers pouring in for projects outside of the band, he and Ridgely agreed to part ways. When they dissolved, Michael said, quote, I think it should be the most amicable split in pop history. But that was easy for him to say. While Ridgely drifted into relative obscurity, George Michael went on to one of the greatest 10-year runs in music history, scoring 15 top 10 hits, including eight solo number ones. His debut album Faith in 1987 sold 25 million copies. The album's first single, I Want Your Sex, was banned by radio stations all over the world due to its sexually suggestive lyrics, which, of course, only made it that much more popular. And his second song, Faith, became the best-selling single in the U.S. and the U.K. for the year 1988. Jason, that song "Faith" when it dropped with
2: the video in black and white, he, he, he was sort of a relaunching and a rebranding, really, of George Michael at the time because Wham was bubblegum pop. And yep. and take nothing away from it, I still
1: rock. You know, "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." It's infectious. But remember, remember what he was wearing in that 1985 video of "Wake Me Up Before You Go Go." Yeah, He's wearing early. the white t-shirt, and, and they're prancing around. And they're the prancing stage. in the in the bold neon shorts, the short shorts. Prancing around the stage, the whole thing. It was super pop in sort of a front of a faux audience of Screaming Girls. They were trying to channel the great legacy of British uh, pop artists. Oh, absolutely. Who attracted the masses and the girls and everything else. And they were younger. And they were younger, right. And then he emerged. And this album, his first solo album, was it was enormous. It was an enormous success. It was the biggest album of the year. When it came out, it re- launched a number of number one hits. But it also redefined him into sort of this like You know rugged cool sort of uh,
2: Suave masculinity because remember So he's dancing around the White and the neon and now he's got denim And leather and he also grew This signature uh, beard Style I I can only call it the George Michael it still Exists it's sort of very close to the skin It almost looks like just a little bit more than a five o'clock Shadow and it's meant to make you look Sort of masculine right and and George George Michael was very intentional In how he was crafting his new image To break free of the frosted tips And the pop world and say look I'm a credible artist, and a song like Faith has a lot more to say than a song like Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. It's just a more meaningful song, it's a lot richer, and he really wanted to showcase his talents and say, Wham! is behind me, I'm George Michael. And his musical style continued to evolve and began to feature social commentary that the earlier music just frankly lacked. 1990's Praying for Time is a somber ballad protesting economic inequality, while Freedom 90, another massive hit, is his screed against the control the recording industry has over young artists. All we have
0: to do now is change these lies and make them true somehow. All we have to see is that I don't belong to you and you don't belong to me. Yeah, yeah. Freedom. I won't
2: let down. But while the message of his lyrics was evolving, the image he was portraying in public and in his music videos was not. He went public in the early 90s with his purported relationship with makeup artist Kathy Jung, and he cast her in steamy music videos alongside many of the world's most beautiful women. He had Naomi Campbell in there, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, Tyra Banks, and more. And all of this was designed to reinforce the public's belief that he was sort of a modern
1: day Casanova. He was very, very attractive. So these videos are coming out when I'm in high school and it was a thing when George Michael released a video because he would somehow line up the most beautiful, successful supermodels in the world, all get them to take their clothes off and to pose in his videos. And he was, he really was perceived as this guy who was like the great Casanova, uh, the great ladies man in, in all of rock music and you know, Behind the scenes, not quite so much. Yeah, you know, Michael was anything but, uh, having lived a closeted
2: existence since at least the mid-1980s. Years later, Michael would say that he began to question his sexuality beginning when he was 19 in 1982, but continued to sleep exclusively with women for years. His girlfriend in the early 90s, Kathy Jung, said Michael confessed to her that he was bisexual, but knew that his mainstream commercial success was dependent on the public's perception of him as a ladies' man. Now, I think about George Michael a lot in this context because he wasn't the only closeted musician at this time. You also had Elton John sort of portraying
1: an image that Elton John was taking footsteps into, maybe I'm bisexual kind of thing, but he was just, and he was uh, clearly... Gay, but he was just sort of putting his toes out there, but he was such a big star established yes. for a decade or more, two decades by that point. And it was different, Elton yeah. John wasn't
2: perceived as a matinee idol. That's now, right. Elton John was a good enough looking guy, but it, it you know, George Michael's image was right. about being a ladies man. It's not like Liberace. Yeah, everybody knew like about Elton Ge- about Elton John It was, was sort of an open secret. open secret. He was flamboyant, but, he wore the glasses right. and
1: all that stuff. But George Michael was the ultimate sort of ladies man, as you said, and it would have been a real shock to everybody to learn the truth. In 1992, Michael met and fell deeply in love with Anselmo Faleppa, a Brazilian dress designer, who was, as far as can be determined, Michael's first significant love interest of any gender. When Anselmo died of AIDS the following year, Michael was both heartbroken and, of course, terrified for his own health. Years later, he would say his primary concern was that it might cause his parents to find out, quote, I thought I could have the disease too. I couldn't go through it with my family because I didn't know how to share it with them. They didn't even know I was gay. It just shows the time, right? He finds out that his partner, his sexual partner, has HIV in a time before there was cures. This is a death sentence if you get it. And his first thought is not, oh my God, I'm terrified for my life. He was obviously sad for his partner. Not I'm terrified for my life. I'm worried that I'm going to now have to tell my parents I'm gay. It, it's unbelievably tragic. I mean, he was trapped by this persona that, you know,
2: to be fair, he created and the music industry created yeah. to sell records. And effectively so. It sold a lot of records that he was sort of a, a, an idol, a sort of a, a handsome man who yep. could be a ladies man. And I always think of him as just the ultimate sort of tragic
1: figure who was trapped by this so success. Many. We talked about Michael Jackson, who, whose sexuality remains somewhat of a mystery, but His whole thing with Priscilla Presley, right? He came, tried to come off as the suave ladies' man, because he wanted to tamp down the speculation that he might be gay, it just wasn't acceptable. Now, of course, uh, we're all very delighted that it's come this far. You can be a very out and proud, I was listening to Frank Ocean on the way to the office this morning, right? You can be an out and proud pop singer in any genre and you can be successful, but it was a very different time. Very different time and a sad commentary on
2: the times because he was right. You know what I think about sometimes is if he would have just come out, it would have impacted his career in a negative way. And he knew that and had to sort of persist in this way in order to have a career.
1: So in 1994, November of 1994, after a long period of seclusion following Anselmo's death, Michael appeared at the first MTV Europe music award show where he debuted his new song, Jesus to a Child, a melancholy tribute to his fallen partner. The exact identity of the song's subject was shrouded in innuendo. The music video featured plenty of naked models as Michael's videos often did, but this time there were both male and female models and they did not interact with one another. This elicited plenty of whispers and speculation, but did nothing to dampen his stardom for now his star shined as bright as ever but two years later it would all come crashing down we'll go ahead and take a quick ad break we'll be back after this
0: what's up everyone it's nick wright and i got something exciting to talk to you about today angie your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well now angie isn't just your average home services marketplace Or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well.
2: According to Beverly Hills Police, on April 7, 1998, George Michael, then just 34 years old, entered a restroom in a public park and began masturbating in front of an undercover police officer. Michael was eventually charged with committing a lewd act in a public place and later pleaded no contest to the charges. As part of his sentence, he was fined in order to perform community service and undergo counseling. This arrest marked the turning point in George Michael's life, and I can't stress that enough. Jason said it at the top. His name suddenly became a euphemism for public sex, and for the first time, he was subjected to significant negative media attention. The British tabloid The Sun ran the story under the headline, Zip Me Up Before You Go-Go, and he was the butt of late-night talk show hosts for years. Michael initially responded by going before the media to address the incident in this way. I don't feel any shame for, I feel stupid and I feel reckless
0: and weak for having um, allowed my sexuality to be be exposed this way.
2: But as time went by and the media scrutiny continued, he lashed out, calling the coverage of the incident anti-gay and claimed he actually only had been in the restroom to use the toilet and had been entrapped by the officer. But that excuse defied common sense and exacerbated the ridicule in a way. He sort of said, I need to come out more strongly and
1: say what the public is actually doing to me. And it backfired. He made a huge mistake. He, he came out and said, I was just in that restroom. It was across the street from a, from a restaurant I was in, and I needed to use the restroom. I didn't want to go back into the restroom. So I went across, and there was some guy there, and he solicited me to take out my genitals and, and, and masturbate in front of him. None of it made sense. The idea that this incredibly famous person who was hounded by paparazzi wherever he goes wouldn't retreat back into the restaurant to use the restroom, but instead walk across the street to a public park it, it just made no sense, and it, it really it, it re- made the problem
2: worse. It reeked of desperation, and yeah. he should have maybe followed the earlier model of of a life just coming undone in this way, as Pee Wee Herman. It right. really is because Pee Wee Herman was the guy in the doing the kids show in the tight gray suit, and all of a sudden, when he's found in the movie theater and has the long hair, and he's masturbating in a to to a porn movie. What he did was very different. Pee Wee Herman stayed quiet for a little while. Then he went on an award show. And do you remember, he said, so anyone seen any good movies lately? Right. He leaned into the joke and, and allowed it to pass. George Michael chose a stance of defiance because he said, "Lo, my whole image is is going to ride. Now I need to just tell them you're being anti-gay if you hated that. And I wasn't even trying to masturbate. It was a mess.
1: So comparing the two incidents, one was a gay incident and the other was not. Pee Wee Herman was not. A huge difference. So I think this was what Michael was facing, a tougher battle than Pee Wee Herman, than Paul Rubens had to face uh, because the public perception, even today, I think it would be perceived differently. Um, And and I think that it wouldn't have been I I don't think he would have been given the opportunity to lean into it and everybody laugh like Pee Wee Herman did. Maybe I'm wrong, but no, I think you're right. I
2: think I think his sexuality was the center of it. And it made the incident different because Pee Wee Herman could ultimately say "Hey, everyone masturbates and we all watch porn. So he could sort of wink and be in on the joke in a way George Michael wasn't able to. Yeah. And as Michael's media obsession increased, his life really began to unravel. He later admitted to beginning to use crack cocaine during this period and was known to consume huge amounts of alcohol and marijuana. He was arrested in 2006 and 2008 for narcotics possession and in 2007 and twice in 2010 for drunk driving. He was tried for the last of these offenses and sentenced to eight weeks in jail. Outside of the courthouse, he was still defiant.
0: The media coverage of this case has been farcical, concentrating almost entirely on the prosecution's allegations. In reality, I've been sentenced today on the basis of unfit driving through tiredness and prescription medicines, which I fully accept responsibility for.
2: So, though Michael no longer created new music, he still wanted to perform. He had successful European tours from 2006 to 2008. And followed that up with tours of Australia in 2010 and the UK in 2012. Here he is at London's Earl's Court Theatre in October
0: 2012.
1: But as it happened, that concert from October 2012 at Earl's Court would be his last. Michael returned to Goring-on-Thames for the winter of 2012 and descended into hardcore drug abuse and sexual recklessness from which he would never emerge. His use of crack cocaine increased, and he began popping the party drug GHB before arranging for anonymous hookups with prostitutes in public parks and elsewhere. Like most addicts do, he tried to get clean from time to time, but it never lasted long. Early in 2016, he spent months at the world-renowned Kusnacht practice rehab facility in Switzerland at a cost of $125,000 per week, but he was reportedly using again within a few weeks of returning home. He's he's very tragic. We both have family members who have been addicts. We've seen this kind of thing before it's amazing that he went on for this long and never was able to get the help that he needed but but we've seen this kind of thing we know how it can overtake somebody's life absolutely and it's a particularly difficult situation to do it in the in the public
2: light um he had already had the controversies from the bathroom incident he felt like a public joke you know yeah. and and for george michael Early in his career, there were jokes about how, how sort of silly Wham was. And he felt like he finally had broken free of that. And he even talked pop.
1: about that later in life. He talked about how he was a little bit embarrassed by the silliness of Wham and the poppiness of Wham. Because he was a
2: true artist. And yes. you can hear it in Careless Whisper is a very different song than a song like Wake Me Up Before You Go Go. And he right. desperately wanted to be seen as an artist. He would sing. He famously sung, sung uh, Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me with Elton John. He wanted to be in that category of yeah. musician who was a very serious musician. And you can see how the addiction just consumed him. It really did. It was the only way he found to numb the pain in his life of this being outed. And I think we've talked about this. If this all happened 10 years forward, I think it would have unraveled in an entirely different way, in a Great. different context if he were – if this were in 2010 rather than 1998. Even that passage of just 12 years, uh, it would have been perceived differently and it might have emerged from it
1: a you little bit Obviously, homosexuality, a, a very different look at homosexuality, mental health, drug addiction, all these things. Sexual addiction, which he clearly had. You know, He couldn't help himself but go to, to find the sex in the public parks and whatnot. All of these things, I think, would have been treated very, very differently. Look, people still die of drug drug addictions, regardless of their wealth or standing in society. It happens all the time. So it may have befallen him as well. But I think, to your point, our perception of what he was going through would have been more sympathetic. He really was a joke. His sort of, again, that euphemism for public sex, that being a George Michael act, I think that haunted him. And it was sort of... You know, it was high up on uh, on the things you thought about when you thought about George Michael really for the rest of his life. Yeah, it was really strange. He was the butt of so many
2: late night jokes and it obscured what was a tremendous talent. Now you go back to George Michael music. He has one of the signature voices of that yes. time period. It is effortless. It is booming. He can do sort of low registers. He can do high registers yep. and he's singular in that sense. Eric, who is a big music buff in this office, loves George Michael.
1: Well, uh, just think about it. He's 11 number one hits between Wham! and his solo career. Very few artists have 11 number one hits. I mean, you can count them on a couple of hands, and they're the biggest names in the history of music. And he he wrote all those songs. His pop sensibilities were unrivaled. Yeah. The tragedy of Michael's death and the legacy of the man were lightened somewhat by the revelation after his death that he had for years been anonymously donating tens of millions of dollars to charity. He died with about a $150 million fortune. It would have been hundreds of millions more. He did this mostly for the benefit of gay rights causes and victims of AIDS. Those who knew him, including Elton John and other musical luminaries, spoke glowingly about the man that he was. But it was Andrew Ridgely, Michael's childhood best friend and wham bandmate, whose casual note to his parents inspired Michael to write the song that would be the foundation of his legacy, who spoke most affectionately about George Michael, and we'll give him the last word. George was one of the greatest
2: singers of our time. His voice was sublime. It expressed both strength and vulnerability, qualities that resonate throughout his outstanding songwriting. It was the expression of his soul made harmony of raw, unfettered emotion. It had the power to send one soaring with its joy and to make one weep with its pain. It brought healing also. His beauty gave balm and succour to the listener. His pain healed ours and his grace gave hope. His achievements were not solely confined to his music, they were personal too. His compassion was as deep as it was compelling and it inspired some of his most touching acts of humanity.